Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending 30th of October 2020. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear us celebrating Donut Day in Melbourne with the uh, first day of zero cases. And we also chatted Mm. to Christos Cholkis all about Loaded and the audio adaptation of his book. Uh, Michael Harden popped in for a visit to um, talk to about what restaurants and cafes opening up will look like. And also we talked about um, diggers and uh, a science experiment that I did when I was in primary school. Um, Nat Harris joined us as our Friday fuddy bugger ahead of a big weekend of socialising for the first time in a long time. And we spoke to journalist and author Rick Morton about his new essay on money. Triple R. Happy Donut Day, everybody. Yay. I cannot, uh, yeah, what an, it's zero cases, uh, zero deaths. Um, everyone's calling it Donut Day. Um, but, Mon, you, were you, because you said that when the cases got to zero, you would, you were going to celebrate by having a donut. Mm-hmm. Um, is that because it was going to be a donut, like, Zero equals donuts. Well, yeah, my partner said that to me. Said when it's zero cases, I'm getting us donuts, and I was like, "Oh, great! Like that's just a yum way to celebrate." And did not put two yeah. and two together. And then two days later, I was like, "Oh, is it because it looks like a zero? And he was yeah. like, "Yes." Oh, see, I was in the same boat. I'm like, <laughs> "Oh, what a what a delicious treat to get yourself when it gets to zero. What a what a great way to celebrate." But it's oh no, that's yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, I'm interested to know what I think it's a day where we can celebrate. We can do something to celebrate, i.e., go out and get a donut, um, something like that. Uh, if you're listening, send us a text. What are you What are you going to do to celebrate? Um, the text line is zero four double six nine eight one zero two seven. Daniel, have you got anything? Well, I I already got a haircut, and thanks for noticing. Uh, Uh, Turn the light on, and I might be able to see it. Months of dishevelment. I already celebrated with a haircut, and it's it was interesting because it was it felt quite ceremonial, but of course it was not anything uh, for them. And it's hard because I think they rush you through because you you can't, you know, you can't linger, and there's people Mm. waiting and stuff. So uh, there was. You, you don't get to have the hairdresser DNMs, but um, you also don't go in and say, I'll just have a trim after <laughs> months of not getting anything. But P- Peninsula Hot Springs is open <gasps> to local residents within 25 kilometres. That's you, isn't it? Is that you? Yeah. Uh-oh, yeah. spa day. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, I think that's going to be – that's on the list. It's on the bloody list. Is that a place you used to go? Is it one of those things where, you know, like if you're overseas, you're like, God, I really miss, you know, Milo, which you never have, but you get all these weird cravings when they're taken away. Is the Peninsula Hot Springs a place you, like, used to go anyway? Or it's just a no. novelty? Okay. No, no, you're right. It's it's, But I think that's genuinely the idea for Victoria. I, I think pe- Victorians should start treating their local surrounds and celebrating the novelty and uh, – Oh. the joy and facilities that we have. Absolutely. Like we I I'm like an hours from Wilson's prom. Mm. And you know, we've had this house here for 5 years and last month was the first time I'd ever been. It's one of those things where mm. like when you're only an hour away, it's like well if you're going to go to Wilson's prom, you're going to go to Wilson's prom, but you're not going to go to Venus Bay and like oh, do you know what I mean? It was just like this it's you know not seeing things in your own backyard. Yeah. Um, I've become quite um, not obsessed. Obsessed is not the right word, but my getting my new thing at the moment is bushwalking, and and finding places to go on a bushwalk is my way. Like I've got to get you know got to get my steps up. So I might as well do it somewhere nice. <laughs> and there's so many nice places around here. So I've been to Wilson's Prom a couple of times. I think that maybe that might be my way of celebrating, maybe driving to Wilson's Prom again and or finding somewhere nice to walk. Yesterday after um the really, you know, the Porsche the Porsche's cause the um <laughs> 
cautious, the, co- the cautious pause. Um, it's good spoonerism. <laughs> it is a little bit cautious pause. What kind of? What are you raising money for? A cautious pause. <laughs> I was just, we, um, uh, and Kath and I went out for breakfast. Um, we went to a cafe, like, and that's, you know, yeah, that's a huge thing in regional Victoria. The fact that we can, you know, go to, you know, go to the pub or a cafe and stuff. It's, you know, um, but we went to this, you know, our local cafe and I, I didn't bring my wallet because I was like, oh, I'll just let Kath can pay for this one, no problem. Um, but, of course, they're like, uh, they, they have to check ID. And I was just like, oh, bugger. And it was just that I was so, already I was, you know, sad by the, you know, the news. And then I was just like having to drive home and like mm. to find ID and I couldn't find my wallet and I was just like, oh, this is just, a... I get back and I'm crying in the cafe and then Kat's like, you okay? I'm like, no, I'm just sad and angry about the news and and I understand and it's fine and I'm, you know, and I'm also, I know that we, we get to sit here and eat at this cafe but it's just annoying that I have to, I'm like, I'm, I know it's all whatever but, and then I just had my little moment and then, um, and then I went, I think I'll go for a walk. And there's this walk, like, it's like literally at the end of our street and it's the this Point Smythe walk. So it walks through and it's, it goes right to the tip of Venus Bay. So, and it's just like it was just going for a walk, you know. I don't think it really matters where you are and what you're looking at, but it's just that that's no one's in, no one talks to you that you've got no contact. You can put headphones on and listen to something and just kind of go. And it's just, it was like, I, I wanted to do this walk quite quickly. It was one of those things where it was like, oh, this is like a five and a half K walk. You'd, um, and a return trip, they said is about two and a half hours. I was like, oh, I reckon I could do it in less than that. And then I, I, I wanted to see how fast I could do it. Um, and I also wanted to look at the beach. So there's bits where you you walk around in this loop, but you have to cut through to go to the beach. I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it through in under two and a half hours and get through to the beach. And then, but I got lost, oh. <laughs> and I missed the turn off to the beach. And I went, I don't want to get back and, and, and before. And then, I, but I still want to go to the beach. And 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 then, so I'll just backtrack a little bit. And I went back, and I came yeah. out on this different beach than I had previously been on when I'd done the walk before, I'm like, I think I'm around the other side. I'll just walk around the beach. Anyway, by the time I got back, it was three hours and I'd walked <laughs> over 10 kilometres. Yeah, but I got your steps up. Got my steps up, absolutely. And uh, and it was just – and also just made me feel really good by the end of the day. Yeah. And now, like, this zero cases. Oh, did you take a, Did you take a snack? No, I took my water bottle. God, good for you. Yeah. I thought about taking it. No, I didn't think about taking it. Because I had I had breakfast. She yeah. had breakfast. Yeah, yeah went out mm-hmm. for breakfast and then I Yeah. Well, and you're only snap. you're only going to be two and a half hours anyway or <laughs> less. Well, no, I was going to be less. I was, <laughs> was going to be doing an hour 45. Or, <laughs> and I was going to be... Going to be back in no, like I nearly finished it in an hour. It's like, oh, we're on the home stretch, mm. and I've only been an hour, and then that's when I backtracked and went, oh. I, I got to stop by a checkpoint yesterday, and it was thrilling. So I might go through the checkpoint again. Oh, <laughs> real danger boy. <laughs> <laughs> really risked that sixteen hundred dollars. What did they? Um, what were they? What were they checking? They were checking, I suppose, if I lived locally. Oh, yeah. Uh, and where I was going, that sort of thing. You, sh- should I say it on air? You, you were encouraging me to. The, uh, the, uh, you can work out if there's a checkpoint. I think if you go on oh, maps, yeah, and you can, it. you can see there's no traffic around. <laughs> but the, a lot of these online map uh, apps will have bars that show where traffic is heavy, and of course, if there's heavy traffic now. Mm then chances are that's a checkpoint. Well, it certainly was in this case. Yeah. 
It's a good tip. Hey, that is a good. That's yeah. That's that's I said. It's a it's a public service announcement. Please don't yeah. arrest me. Yeah. But and also, don't use this information to get out of the ring of steel because no, exactly. That's not why. We're, yeah, it's just no. an interesting little tidbit. It's just a it's tidbit, just, damn it. Yeah, just little. Oh, isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. I won't use it for for evil, but I just it's just nice to know yeah. things sometimes. Happy Donut Day, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Chris Ostchalkis in 1995 released his debut novel Loaded, which describes a hectic 24 hours in the life of Ari, a young unemployed gay Greek Australian. Its film adaptation, Head On, screened at Cannes and was nominated for nine AFI awards. Now, through Malthouse Theatre, Loaded is getting the 21st century treatment, reimagined as an audio play. And to tell us about it, the award-winning author, essayist, playwright and exponent of Tuesday Night Superfluity on Triple R joins us on the line now. Christos, welcome back to Breakfasts. Oh, always a pleasure to be back. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning to you. You've spent a lot of time, oh, a bit of time lately in projects looking back, I suppose, at the revisiting the 90s. I mean, you, the 1999 play you co-wrote, Who's Afraid of the Working Class, was rebooted re-imagined. as reimagined as Anthem and now Loaded is getting reloaded. What What are you learning about yourself in Melbourne in the oh. f- from looking back like this? Well, it, it, it is peculiar. I mean, with Anthem, there was a, a, a that that came from the five of us who were part of the, the original team, all the way back in from Melbourne Workers Theatre, which was a great theatre company in in Melbourne that that began in the late eighties, and I was very lucky to be part of. And that was that was you know what do the politics? Who's afraid of the working class? Was was written um, when Jeff Kennett came to power. Uh, a very particular thing that happened in, in Melbourne and Victoria at the time and the kind of the emergence of neoliberalism. And Anthem was going, okay, what does it mean in the, in the 21st century, those politics? And, you know, that was fascinating intellectually to do. Loaded's been really strange because Ari is this character that I created when I was quite young and he's a mm. bit of an alter ego and he it's 25 years ago, mm. which is uh, such Time is a bloody quarter of a century. Uh, So it was really strange to go back and read the book, which I haven't read in over two decades. Oh, wow. And actually actually hear this voice. And the other, but where I've been really lucky is the plays written by myself, but also with uh, Dan Giovannoni, who adapted uh, with uh, Little One's Theatre Company a couple of years back uh, a collection of short stories I did called Merciless Gods, and they did an amazing job. I can't take any credit for that. That was Dan and Stephen Nicoletso, who's the director of, um, of of this new adaptation of Loaded as well. But, but as soon as I saw it, I was so chuffed by what they had done with the work that I knew I wanted to work with these guys. And when it came, and, and Stephen said he would like to adapt Loaded, and I was initially really nervous because I thought, how does this character stand up? And the other thing I thought was, well, if I'm going to do it, is it that Ari is my age now? You know, is it about him looking at Melbourne from uh, 2019, which is when we began? And Dan, who is a generation younger than, than than myself, he gave me the courage to say, no, I think this character can work for for, for now. That we can have an, a 20 year old Ari in 2019, 2020, and that felt really exciting. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't have done I don't know if I could have done it. In fact, I'm sure I couldn't have done it on my own. It was that I had, I was working alongside Dan, who was able, I was able to trust that he would be able to go, Chalkers, you have no idea what <laughs> what it's like now. <laughs> you, know, you reload it, and part of me is, wow, I'm really proud of this angry queer character still makes sense. But there's no social media. There's no, yeah. there's no mobile phone. It's a very, very different, different world that he that that he lives in. Yeah, and so now that uh, Ari, this alter ego, is is he? Do you still recognise yourself in Ari? Yeah, look, I, I, he, for me, uh, what's fascinating about uh, and strange, I think, about going back to the book is is what I recognise is this young man who I no longer am who wanted so desperately to be a writer. Mm. <laughs> and, I, and, and in Loaded, I'm, you know, part of me cringes and goes, oh, why did I repeat that bloody word again in the, in the same <laughs> sentence? And you, you see all the faults technically, 
But I also, I, I do think he's, I, I, you know, I'm touching wood and I don't want it to sound vain, but I am proud of him as a character. And I see myself, Dan, to your question, but I also see that I'm trying to forge a voice that interprets the world who's not quite me either, mm. you know. And, I, you know, I, I think maybe I, one of the things that this play has done is made me think maybe I will return one day, who knows, to Ari as an older person, mm. reflecting back. Well, because he does belong to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what was it? Sorry, to switch, what was it like going back and and reading your your work again? What's that like? Well, it's you know it is that strangeness because you, you of uh, of going oh do I remember who was this young person who wrote this book, Jen? Like you know who, mm-hmm. who, who was it? And there's that part that you go. You know, the politics were different, uh, the culture was different, um, that, but at the same time it's also surprising to read how alert this young man was about what was going to happen. Like, he, you know, he's, he's quite a, he's an angry character, he's a brash character, he's 19, so of course he's full of himself as every 19-year-old mm. is, but he's also desperately shy and, and, and still working himself out. So it feels, I felt really tender to him. I guess that's, uh, that, uh, I just I just thought Ari, you know, I, I didn't feel it when I was writing it because I was, you know, I was only a few years older than, than, than he was. But this time I'm like going, maybe you shouldn't do that other line of speed, right? had enough for Maybe you should go home. <laughs> Plus, you uh, you get to put in some uh, contemporary music references. Was that fun? It. it was that because I love music. Clearly, you know this is why I love Triple R and why I love doing Superfluity, and 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 it did allow me to go okay. And that in when Dan and I reimagined the character for me, that was almost the beginning of um doing this play. Was going what would Ari's playlist look like now? Mm-hmm. Why did listening to and of course because he's also he's listening to it in different ways um the 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 war in the original novel for people who don't know it the walkman is key right it's it's all about the walkman that's ari's life well that's very old technology um and so i had to kind of go what would be the songs what would be the tracks what would be the music that would give him energy in 2019, 2020. And so I just sat down, you know, I, I did the completely nerdy thing. I just sat down and listened to all this music that I had loved over the last 20 years, but also um, trying to imagine myself as a 19-year-old, which is fun. It's yeah. Fun. <laughs> and, you know, there's a great, and it's not, it's, uh, and I, I do mean this, Dan is also such a focal part of the work. So for me, there was a moment where I used Kanye West Yeezus because, um, I, I do love that album, and I've also I was modelling it on a cousin's son who loves Kanye, and mm-hmm. I was kind of um, and also I think because of the kind of strange politics of Kanye West, there's a lot you can do with with him. There's a moment with Ari dances to the streets because <laughs> I, I, I love Blinded by the Lights, and I just wanted to write something that captured that energy of that song. But one of the, the best and loveliest and hardest and uh, exciting musical moments comes from Dan when he talks about um, a group of people at a party dancing to MIA's Bad Girls. <laughs> and that, you know, and that's what I mean. It's really a collaboration that comes from the both of us. Yeah. Um, it's also um, Ari, well, you're a student of the suburbs and Ari, yeah. I, I, was, I was reading you wrote the forward to the Australian ugliness uh, as well um, when that was reissued. And Ari says, you know, he's wandering through, he says he's, in just another suburb in this city of suburbs. What has your looking back at Melbourne through the eyes of Ari, has your relationship with the suburbs, do you think, evolved in these 25 years? I, I would say that I, I thought when, I, when we, we began this project that it would be the sexuality stuff that would be the biggest change and also the, the race stuff, you know, um, uh, Ari's identification around WOG feels really different in, in 2020 to what it was in, in the mid-90s. But actually, guys, the biggest change from the novel to the play is what Melbourne is, mm. you know, because it's no longer, you know, it's no longer 
you know, the, this is a young man in the novel who grew up in Richmond. And Richmond was a particular um, kind of suburb. And I think there's a point where Ari in the play, who once was working class, once was black fella, once was wog. It's no longer that. Or, and what we try to do is say there is a ghost trace of that city. You know, those things don't go away. You, there, are, there are traces on them and the ghosts there. And, and, I th and also that things no longer happen in a five-kilometre, in that five-kilometre mm -hmm. zone that we've become all familiar with. That it is a, a, a radically different city. So, for, for example, Dan, there's a, a character that I've always loved in the novel, Betty, who's one of his best friends, and she's a really smart um, Kick-ass feminist, young, you know, young Wogchi, you know, and in the in the book, she's she's all about coming to the inner city. That's well, she can't dream that anymore. So she, you know, she says to Ari, let, let, "Let's get a place in Dandenong, in the Dong," because you know, that's a different way of being in the city to what it was like 25 years ago. Yeah, it, and that's about the city. And I think the other thing that when we were rethinking the book, it's about money and how. Class has changed in, in Melbourne as well. I hope that people, I hope that there's two ways you, you're going to experience Loaded. And one is if you do know the book and head on, the, the, the amazing film Anna Kokinos made from the book. I was really lucky with that adaptation. Um, and so you'll kind of go back and forth in your head, kind of thinking back to the book and or the film and what the difference is. And I also think if you if you know nothing about the book and you know nothing about the film, I think it's going to take you through a ride in your head orally to what the city feels, sounds, looks like in 2020. I think that's – and I've got to thank my co-writer, I've got to thank – Stephen, the director, got to think. Fuck, I'm sorry, I, I swore I'm <laughs> but I was so excited by what Roy did as the actor and the amazing Dan Nixon who put the sound together. Because you know, we really wanted this to be on stage. We really wanted it to be theatre, and then COVID happened, and yeah. we thought it was all going to disappear, right? And so that Malthouse had trusted the play and said, "Let's," you know, when they said we can do it as an audio production, we just got really excited, and. It works, you know, I love the traditional form of the radio play. I love radio because of the intimacy of what radio does. And I actually, I prefer that it now is a ra an audio experience that you can do as a podcast than actually the highly pixelated video screen. Mm. I think it's close to the theatre. That's right. And it's around forever now. Yeah. <laughs> We've it's uh it's Roy Joseph uh, playing Ari in uh, this adaptation. The audio experience loaded is on sale to the public from Friday, uh, October thirty, um, and it's uh it's 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 also available now as an audio experience exclusively to ticket holders at the Malt House. Anyway, go to malthousetheatre.com.au for Somewhere all the details. <laughs> yes, exactly, for all the information. Uh Chrisos, uh, congratulations and uh thanks for speaking with us again. Oh, it's always a pleasure and thanks for letting me wrap it on. I just went like that. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Christos. Triple R. Uh. <laughs> I'm hungry, I want something to eat, something with a crunch and very sweet. For Food Interlude, Epicurean Michael Harden joins us on this momentous morning for his industry. Morning, Michael. Morning. Morning. Aren't we all feeling cheery this morning with the idea of being able to uh, rush out into the nearest restaurant and guts ourselves? Yes. Yeah. Yes. However, you chose not to because you're yeah. responsible. Yeah, because yeah, exactly. I sort of there was there. I knew there was a few uh, celebrations last night. I know there was one at the European that I was invited to. That like you know, and this this is how dedicated I am to my segment this morning because I realised that I probably would be in no state <laughs> to be making any kind of sense after that. So uh, you know, I forgot. I I forwent a uh, Philippa Sibley cooked uh, meal at the European last night wow. for, for this. So that's dedication. We so, applaud your sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was I'm for. standing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what does today mean? 
Um, so, okay, so we're, you know, we're getting into the, the first stage of being allowed into restaurants. So that means that there's a maximum of 20 people allowed indoors and 50 people outside. But, you know, you have to look at the 20 people thing. It's like it also that that is um, accompanied with the 1.5 metre to 2 metre distancing rules inside. So most places, unless they've got two separate rooms, they're only going to be allowed 10 people at a time. So it's still pretty, pretty minor. And that's going to mean that there's quite a few places, particularly the larger ones, that are not going to open until things get a bit looser because it's just not... Um, economically viable for them to, to open with that sort of thing. And some of the what the other ones that don't have any street frontage. So it's, it is still going to be a bit limited, but, you know, don't want to be too negative about it because it is, this is the green shoots and, you know, we are being able to um, go out and eat and I will be eating from tomorrow night onwards <laughs> and um, we'll need a bigger screen the next time you see me. So, but it's um, you know, there's the thing. It's going, but it is going to change. Like generally, as things, even as things open up, it's going to change more. We're going to be um, having to um, use masks in restaurants, but you are able, like you do with picnics at the moment, you are able to. Once you're sitting at the table, you can take your mask off. Mm. But if you want to go to the loo, you need to put your mask back on. So any movement around the restaurant, you need to put your mask back on and then and and move around that way. Um, so servers, of course, are going to have to have their mask on the whole time. So, um, you know, in some circumstances, that might be a relief because, you know, if you get asked one more time, how is everything? Where before you have to <laughs> in your mouth. Um, so, you know, that could be a good thing. And I think generally I think service is going to change a little bit until things um, turn around because it's like the, there's going to be less servicing at the table on part of the on the part of service because they need to limit the amount of contact between people. So they're going to be things like so you're looking at you know the biggest changes will be in things like degustation menus where you know you're, you're getting twelve courses or whatever being served to you. That's not going to happen of having somebody back and forth servicing the table. So um, dishes will probably start arriving in group lots. So there'll be four dishes that land on a table at one time. And so you'll be you'll eat through those and then they'll be taken away and then the next lot will come. So it will change in a way the way that dishes are made as well, because they're going to that, that these are going to have to be dishes that um, don't need to be, you know, aren't at their prime when they hit the table and you eat them hot. So that like chefs are going to have to sort of adjust their thinking a little bit about the kind of food that we're going to be eating. So it's like there's a lot of things that are going to really change in the way that restaurants work. Um, You're saying, um, like, if you go to a pub um, and just have a meal there, you're saying that there won't be table service or, like... There will be table service, but they're not allowed to come back and forth. You know, it's like, you know, with a with a regular, you know, in a regular table service setting, there'll be people coming back and they'll be refilling your water glass and they'll be topping up your wine and everything. Your wine will be on the table. Your carafe of water will be on the yeah. table. You'll get all the cutlery for everything that you've ordered at the one time, you know, that sort of thing. It's sort of just... I'm it's hearing you. Yeah. Order two drinks. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Sort of, you may need an extra table um, <laughs> to have the drinks next to In truth, ordinarily, pandemic or no pandemic, if the waiter comes, make it count. Exactly, mm. yeah. exactly. But don't send them away. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's the thing. It's sort of like, and be be ready because you don't want the you don't want them saying that like when the waiter goes, "Are you ready to order?" and you go, "Yes, I am." And then you start looking at the menu, <laughs> um, um, as they're tapping their foot, and you don't want a waiter next to you tapping their foot and sighing sort of loudly, like you know, breathing all over you as they're in irritation. So you know, think about it. I think the um the other thing that's probably going to happen is because of the limited number of people allowed in restaurants i think menus are going to shrink a mm. bit too so there's going to be there'll be less choice in menus which i think is not a bad idea i think it's like you know having that that idea of having some sort of something for everybody is um probably a little bit outdated and is another reason why restaurants you know increasingly their profit margins are so narrow it's because the expectations that they provide everything for everybody mm. and um i pro i think that that might also um 
mean that things like dietary restrictions are going to be are going to be less catered to. I think that there will be, um, you know, there will always be people know that there's like there will always be a vegan option. There will always be vegetarian options. That they'll probably you'll you'll find something on there that's gluten free. But I think that it will be more about the customer having to do their own research about a, a restaurant's menu about whether if they've got particularly diet particular dietary requirements to kind of check the um, menu out online before they go and do their own research. Because, you know, restaurants, they can't afford to be able to be catered, like, you know, when they're, when they're only allowed 20 people inside. And even when it goes up to 40 people, when they're at like, you know, 25 to 30% capacity, they can't afford to be doing all of that. So it's like it's now back, I think, on the customer to take um, responsibility for their own. They're not health clinics. They're not there to sort of, you know, so it's like, you know, it's time to sort of people to, I think, um, have a look at it. And most menus will, you know, most people with dietary requirements will find something on a menu that they can eat. But the expectation that they can just walk in anywhere and be able to be catered to is probably going to change as well. Mm. Would you, what about pricing? Do you think that'll be oh, passed on to the consumer? It's got to go up. I think the two ways that it's going to go is that eating out is going to become more expensive, um, you know, just because of everything that they have to do in order to um, to be open. You know, even, you know, when you're looking at all the extra cleaning and that sort of stuff that they're going to have to do in between sittings. So if you've got, you know, two, three sittings a night, then, you know, there's a lot of wiping down. There's a lot of cleaning in between those sittings. So, you know, that takes extra labour, all of that sort of stuff. So I think it will be the other way. I think it will be places sort of there, there'll be, I think the other thing that might happen, sort of small pop-up nimble sort of places that, that don't need that much servicing, you know, and kind of like in temporary spaces and that sort of thing. So I think it might go both ways that it's like the actual dining, if you want a dining experience, you're going to have to pay more money for it. But if you're happy for a bit more casual sort of out there kind of thing, that there'll probably be more of that happening. Like I, I know that there's a couple of places that have opened, been opening up in the city that are basically food windows. Mm. Um, there's a new sandwich joint called um, King William that's opened up in the city and it's just it's basically a roller door that rolls up and there's a window and they do these fantastic sandwiches mm. and um, but you know it's sort of like you're then you go and find somewhere to go and eat it you know rather than rather than having to or they might have some a few tables out on the pavement so it's sort of like that really kind of almost picnic kind of version of, of eating out. And who do restaurateurs defer to for information if it's like, well, how many seats can we have outside? How far onto the footpath? Can we do that at all? Um, that's, how many people? That's back on that. That's back on the council again. Like, you know, sort of like the state government has said that they're going to allow, you know, loosen up regulations for outside dining and new spaces and stuff already. I think on Flinders Lane, they're already sort of taking, they're already sort of partitioning off parking spaces down one side of the street. Um, so there's those sort of things. So it's going, but it's going, it's going to go back to council regulations, which some people are worried because the councils can be, you know, it, it can be a lot of um, toing and froing in order to get these regulations. And, you know, a lot of time the regulations are there for a good reason because, you know, they need to be able to have people walking on the pavement who are sort of visually impaired or whatever that aren't tripping over, you know, tables and chairs and, mm. and umbrellas. Yeah. Can you give an example of a big restaurant that's just not in their interest to open yet? Um, I think one of them is... Um, Gimlet, which was um, Andrew McConnell's newest joint in the city on the corner of um, Russell and uh, Flinders Lane. A beautiful restaurant, absolutely gorgeous restaurant, but they're doing, they're limiting their service at the moment to um, uh, private functions. Um, because, and it's, you know, I would take advantage of that if you have a private function that you wanted to do because it is a gorgeous room, but it's too big to service properly with 20 people to afford to be able to afford the same time i think somewhere like flower drum has not um has not organized that they're there when they're opening just yet um because they have no street frontage so you know they're they're on the first level mm. and um you know it's going to be it's and it's a large restaurant again that needs a lot of people to make it work um so i think until numbers go up a bit i think some of those places are going to be will will be waiting yeah uh, for for the next for the next round of release. So, how many nights are you booked out for the this coming week? Um, I think out of the next seven days, I've, I'm booked out for about ten. <laughs> <laughs> 
brilliant. Um, we really appreciate uh, you foregoing last yeah. night to join well, us this morning yeah. coherently. Yes, well, I'm glad. I'm glad that somebody does. So. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Harden, thanks, Eve. Triple R. Walked up a mountain yesterday. Don't want to brag, but um, oh. very good. I did it. Uh, um, went on one of my little hikes that I've been going on a few, you know, lately. And uh, so, yeah, w- walked up um, Mount Bishop in Wilson's Prom. Um, and it was so stunning and so beautiful. And it was just, you know, it was just so great. I loved it. Um, it took me two hours to get to the top and half an hour to get to the bottom. <laughs> Did you have a sled? Just, uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, I actually um, ran down, like not all the way, but just would, you know, run a couple of steps and then to I would I couldn't run all the way because I'd fall over. Mm-mm. I can't tell you how many times I would trip over a rock <gasps> and just you know just do that stumble. And think, well, that could have been a lot worse. <laughs> like, so many times. Mm. Um, but on on when I was walking up, though, there was a um, a digger. Obviously, they were doing keeping like the maintaining the track, um, and so it's just this digger on the path, but nobody around. So obviously, it was probably because it was about lunchtime, and I think dare say the workers had gone and had their lunch. And just left a digger on the path. Did you get on? And hey, did you jump on it? <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> no one was there, and I was just like, "Why? Why? You know, it's so it's open. It's like you know. Of course, I sat. <laughs> just have a little sit, and then you know." Wiped it off with my alcoholic wipes and uh, <laughs> yeah. no, I did. You know, to be honest, I I didn't sit on it, but God, I was tempted. I was so tempted to do it, um, you know. And automatic. I think it's because it's so accessible. Like you just like you can just step up and you're sitting in an, in in a vehicle that's not yours, and that's you know that's fun and exciting. And also, just looking, well, the keys there. I could have a, I could have a little drive of this. Could I start her up? Um, Were that they weren't in there, I presume. No, 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 no one was around. No, but the keys, well, you didn't check. No, the keys weren't there, mate. Oh yeah, right. Because <laughs> no, if you were driving a digger, wouldn't you go? Who's going to steal a digger? I'm just going to. Who could? Who's even going to be here? I mean, was it a busy mountain? No, I didn't see anybody on, didn't see on it. it. Yeah. Walked all the way up, all the way back down, did not see a soul until, like, on the way back down, the workers had finished their lunch and so they had to, yeah, so I saw them on, on towards the bottom. Um, but this digger, though, it reminded me when um, when I was in primary school, every day I'd walk home and it was just in my friend's place. There was a someone, I don't know if they worked for the council or if they were some sort of worked in some sort of construction, but they had their own digger and it would just parked out the front of their house like it was in, like it was a car, and it just parked out on the street. And every day, I can't tell you how many times, I did sit on that one because it was like, (laughs) you know, you're a kid and you're just like, oh, I'm just, I'll just have a little seat. I don't know how many times I was yelled at to get off it, but I would still... Every day was obsessed with it. Was just like, oh, you know, because you walk the same place, the same way home every day. And I was like, oh, there's, oh, it's back. Oh, I'll just close yeah. and then <laughs> take off again. It was so dumb. It was so dumb. The other weird obsession I had um, when I was uh, in primary school was um, probably even younger, but definitely in primary school, was I wanted to know if people, um, if you could feel, if your fingernails had feeling. So if if someone was um, – so I would just secretly touch people's fingernails. <laughs> How can you do that secretly? Well, if, you know, the class would go, all right, everyone sit down on the floor, <laughs> and I would sit, you know, towards the back. And then so if a kid was kind of, you know, if they'd put their hand back to lean back, and I'd be like, all right, this is my – 
opportunity. <laughs> and then I would, you know, they they wouldn't notice, you know, the teacher would be talking about something and then I would just ever so slightly touch that thing because you don't want to put pressure because I didn't want to ruin the experiment by putting too much pressure on it because mm. like, oh, they can just feel pressure on their finger. So mm. it just... I would just lightly touch their fingernail, um, and I never knew because they people would move their hand, but I don't know whether that was because they went, why is, yeah. why is one of the students touching my hands? Why is this weird girl touching my fingernail? <laughs> or whether they were just like, oh, I'm ready to change positions now. So did you publish your findings or? <laughs> Still working. <laughs> yeah, during this, I've sort of been like. Trying to do it to myself, but obviously I can feel that. But like, yeah. yeah, but that's I would sit there doing that as well, just going oh, and then I'd go fingernail to fingernail. I'm like I don't know if I can. Anyway, yes, yeah. and you, you don't want to encroach onto the cuticle as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they're tiny. Remember, primary school, tiny fingers. If there was a if there was a digger in a shopping centre, you know how kids can jump on, you know, like mm. a truck, or whatever. You put a dollar and it throws you around. If there was just a digger, like just a real one, for, yeah, or a small, I don't care, but just for adults, doesn't even have to move. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would pay to sit in it. I agree, it's super exciting, isn't it? It's just yeah. why though? What's it so exciting just to sit in a? Because it's yeah. I, I was travelling somewhere and. Uh, I'd sat and watched someone operate a digger for, I think, an hour and a half. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. How Also, how good are those with those sand pit That's what I was just thinking things? of. I was like, you can do this. You can kind of do yeah. a lo-fi version of it. If you go to a sand pit, Daniel, grown man, go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries. Playgrounds are open. I'm in. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> Triple R. As we head into the long weekend for some, it's time to check in with our Friday funny bugger, Nat Harris. Morning, Nat. Morning, guys. Good How are you going? Morning. Good. Very thanks. well, thank you. Yeah. Good Feeling spirit. nice and relaxed after your theme intro. Oh, I love it. Always <laughs> just gets the good vibes going, doesn't it? Mon, you love it. I just, I, I, it's enough for me to never do the show again. Oh. <laughs> I can't help but take that personally. <laughs> I'm going journal about this <laughs> <laughs> just got a little twing twi- a little twinge like, oh. oh no i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> no don't be silly don't be silly um so guys how are we are we all booked up for the weekend are we all excited there are some things on mm-hmm. there are some yeah things on. yeah talk me through your calendars <laughs> Oh, I, I mean, just just restaurant situations. I don't know. It's yeah. it, it's it's exciting. It's my first outing. I've had. I've been excited to have to shuffle things around because I've got more than one thing on. That's the best part of it. Oh, yeah. using your diary again? Yeah. What, what is it? <laughs> yeah, my friend had to buy a diary. He's like, I've got so many dinners, I had to buy a diary. Well, oh, I did Calm down, mate. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Good on you. He's probably been invited to two dinners and it's just like. <laughs> oh, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> I'm I would say that's what we've all been invited to, okay? Yeah. Just wink twice. Everyone's like, oh, I'm so busy. Mac, two dinners, yeah. okay? Yeah. But I'm like, okay, so I I have two dinners on the weekend, which is huge for the, you know, like that's a lot of dinners, okay, mm. from what we're coming out of. But obviously, yeah, I've got all these reservations and nothing to talk about. And none of us have anything to talk about. Uh, until the right. next no dinner. Goss. And you can talk about no, the previous dinner. No goss. Yeah, mm. I was thinking, I'm like, this is why drinking games, staring competitions and murder mystery parties were invented. <laughs> yeah. Because no one has anything to say to each other. Mm. Geraldine, you look shocked and offended. By no, this. I've started what, a staring you, competition. <laughs> Starting is. Do you know what? In primary school, and I was thinking about this. I'm like staring competitions. Like, I had a a teacher who my music teacher. Most most lessons would just have staring competitions. That's music. 
I know. That's not music. So it's for lazy <laughs> teachers as well. No joke. She would line us up across the front of the classroom and we just had to like stand and stare into the distance and she'd just point her finger if we blinked. And I would like have tears streaming down <laughs> my face. Like I would be so desperate, you know, to win the approval of my amazing music teacher. Would um, she do that um, at the at the start of a lesson, or would she do it when you know? It was the main event, Geraldine. <laughs> <laughs> like honestly, it was quite a shonky primary school. Like you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> we would do staring competitions. And we would also, like for special occasions, she'd bring in Smarties and whoever could keep a Smartie in their mouth, on their tongue, without it fully dissolving or eating it would win. For a music class, it sounds like she's doing everything she can for you to make no noise. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Honestly, I do not remember singing one song (laughs) or tapping one thing, like not even banging the table. With with the Smartie, would you have to... um... It was torture. Can you imagine that? <laughs> yes. Would you have to stand there with your tongue poking out with the smarty on the end of it or just yeah. kind of have your mouth open? Yeah, we had to do checks. Like, <laughs> the listeners, I just mimicked a check, which was just a sad poke out of the tongue. It wasn't pretty. Um, so anyway, there you go. It's because you've got and- a small tongue. It's that... <laughs> Is that as far as it goes out? Yeah, it's tiny. I only have half a tongue. <laughs> Ponder that for the rest of the weekend. Um, so, yeah, I just thought maybe, yeah, so I think it, it, it could be good going into um, these reservations on the weekend, maybe just to have a think about some conversation starters. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I, I've just written down a few. Where are they? Um, I think as well. It can be in the delivery as well. Just hit people with an energy or a pace. Where is it? Um, some, have you ever shot a gun? Um, <laughs> biggest regret, uh, rhino or giraffe? Just, you know, random stuff like that. Also, I think this could be really fun. And if we all get involved in it, you can just ask people if they've watched certain shows. Just make up the plot of a show or a twist of an existing show that was really big um, – during lockdown and then just claim that you watched it on a new streaming site called Brick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So just get behind it, guys. I think it could be a fun little game. Is that to catch people out who are lying, pretending that they've seen it? No, it's more just for fun, for your own fun. It's Mm. just like, did you, did anyone watch Petrol Boys? (laughs) Oh, what? You didn't watch Petrol Boys? (laughs) Or, you know, you didn't, or My Octopus the Lover? (laughs) (laughs) You mean my I do think I saw that. Yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> I just feel like, oh my, my god, you didn't. You know, I I watched the teacher one, but then there was a follow up. My octopus lover on Brick streaming service. <laughs> Fantastic. On Brick, can I get your password for Brick? Absolutely. Yeah, guys, it's three months free, but then three hundred and forty dollars a month <laughs> plus a puppy if you forget to unsubscribe. So. <laughs> You've really got to stay on that. Um, the sequel to Tiger King was incredible. Um, so I just think that that's a fun game you can play with yourself. That is fun. I like the idea of <clears throat> starting a lie and seeing when it comes back around to you. Yeah. Start it, like the, I the think brick- that one will come around pretty quick. <laughs> But it's just fun to entertain the lie, you know. Um, Can I say my yeah. my concern about leaving the house and all these uh, reservations please. is that uh, you'll take a mask, but, you know, people sometimes lose their wallet, their phone, their keys. Yeah. You can lose a mask. Suddenly you're on the street, you're mask. maskless, and you're open to a fine or getting, you know, heckled. You are, absolutely. Um, Daniel, you've got to get yourself a 10-pack of disposable masks <laughs> okay. yep. and just carry them with you because how many masks have you lost today? Oh, oh a dozen. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But don't you always, aren't you always wearing it? And exactly. Then... I don't know where they go, honestly. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, some are black, some are N95s, some are, yeah. have the, the ball a... gag thing. <laughs> Honestly, because I lose everything, Daniel. 
lose mm. everything, and I have not lost a mask. So this really says something about you, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to be bursting with spares. Oh, you're right. Yeah, bursting with spares or wear turtlenecks. Mm. <laughs> not acceptable anymore, Nat. No. Oh, not acceptable, but it's an emergency. It's just some kind of shield to have over his face if he needs to get home. I guess you Absolutely. can just start jogging because you don't have to wear one if you're going for a run. That's Great, Mon. Mm. Really so, good. Break out into Daniel. a run. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, yeah, just wear the shorts and athleisure wear out. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing I wanted to cover quickly is that I know a lot of people um, are quite anxious are going out as well, again, into social situations. Mm-hmm. Um, I am – I get – I've always gotten a bit of social anxiety, um, despite appearing like I'm someone who relishes in attention. Um, (laughs) But I'm always dumbfounded by advice that it always says, if you're feeling anxious, just take a few deep breaths, okay? Mm. And it's like, well, excuse me. It's like, when am I supposed to take these seven deep breaths (laughs) when I'm out having a pub meal and, you know, the anxiety hits and I'm, you know, trying to – hold a conversation while not have a meltdown in public, okay? Well, no, during the staring competition, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) The staring competition, very good, exactly. But if you need to – I'm all about the diversion technique, so a staring competition is great, but something a bit more animated that's going to help you get those breaths in, okay? These are some – these are more tactics or coping mechanisms that I picked up um, from a drama class, actually. I remember a drama teacher told me, if in doubt, confess something or fake cry. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's the same, so, same music teacher you had as well? Yes. <laughs> oh Multidisciplinary genius. The stakes are high for being in doubt. Yes. Sure. I know. Confess something. I know. <laughs> I, I stole $20 when you're in the bathroom. <laughs> But then they're not going to focus or at least then it's kind of an animated conversation and you can sneak those deep breaths in, okay? Or you can just go, look over there <laughs> and, and then get those deep breaths in. So these are some coping strategies for dealing with social anxiety. Uh, a loud outfit always helps as well. Just anything that kind of can help you control the conversation. Mm, anything that brings all the attention back to you is definitely a good cure for anxiety. Isn't it? And then you'll go home and remember what you've done and you'll never leave the house again. <laughs> um well, have a tremendous long weekend, Nat. Uh, if you want to see Nat, she'll be performing at restaurants around town. Yabba dabba do. Good luck. Thanks, Heaps. Triple. Ah. Uh. Rick Morton is an award-winning journalist whose first book, 100 Years of Dirt, was last year shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and the 2019 National Biography Award. Having left The Australian, where he worked as the social affairs writer with a particular focus on social policy, Rick is now a senior reporter for The Saturday Paper. He's just released a new essay titled On Money, which examines the meaning of money and why it raises such powerful emotions. And to tell us about it, the writer joins us on the line now. Rick, welcome to Breakfasters. Morning, team. How are we? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good. Um, in in what ways has uh, your upbringing, do you think, informed your attitude to money now? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's poisoned the well for me in terms of, like, good management of money. Um, I, I think you can, if you're a child of poverty, I think you can go one of two ways. And one is to try and control everything in your life later on when you're doing okay for yourself. Um, and the other way for me is to kind of give up on any sense of control and... I just assume now that, you know, money isn't meant to hang around because it never did when I was a kid. Um, And so if I've ever got a surplus, um, which has been rare in the last 15 years, let me tell you, um, I just don't think about planning for the future because the future may look very different to the one that I imagined. So I just spend it. And Mm. I haven't had savings since I left high school. Um, And I'm now 33. And what about... uh the issue of money growing up that you've held on to in terms of, you know, is it that talking about the cost of things, is there anything associated with money that's a bit 
Doge. Oh, yeah. well, I mean, the the one thing that I'm still struggling to adapt to as a on paper middle class man now, with lots of middle class friends, is that people don't talk about money mm. ever. Um, whereas you know, growing up, we had to talk about money because literally everything. Um, you know, we had to discuss whether we could afford something, mm. um, even if it was just a chocolate bar, um, you know, as kids. And I learned very quickly to know what the price of things were. And mum used to kind of bring me in because I was more mature than my older brother. So she used to tell me more about the finances than than he knew. Uh, and so everything had a cost and a value and everything was permissible or not based on those kind of figures. But I realise now as you get older, people don't talk about how much they earn and they don't talk about how much they pay for things or like expensive purchases um, and things like that, whereas I'm just like, how much does it cost? <laughs> <laughs> and like um, I still, I mean, I ask that question all the time and people look at me like I'm a, like an absolute freak. Um, but you ha- we had to know those questions and answers when I was a kid. There was no other way around it. You talked about in, in the essay, you talked about that your, you know, your mother I guess suffered from uh, structural poverty, mm. um, whereas you are more it's more likely to be psychological or um, a product of the system. Um, can you talk to us a bit about you know I guess what those systems are and you know what the difference yeah. is? Well, I mean, it's hard for me to. I mean, I feel a lot of guilt because Mum never had a choice, right? So. You know, the the real short story is that, you know, she married my father. She was out of the workforce for almost 20 years. She had three children. One of them was burned and nearly killed in a, in a bad accident on this remote cattle station we lived on. My sister had just been born. She was three weeks old. And then my dad had an affair with the governess, left the family, froze all the bank accounts, and we had literally nothing, mm, uh, literally wow. nothing. Um, and mum just had – she'd left school in year 10 because that was kind of what you did back in those days. And she'd had a couple of jobs working for David Jones when she was still, you know, 18, 19. Um, and that was it. So she she didn't have any skills um, for a modern workplace. And she had three kids. And everything she ever did from that moment was to make sure that we had a buffer zone so we didn't feel as poor as we actually were, um, that we felt loved, which I'm so um, lucky to have because some people don't even have that from even one parent. Um, and so that was kind of her world. And in order to get us, it's kind of like a slingshot in a way, in order to get us into the next income quintile or to escape poverty for her children, she had to remain where she was. Um, and it kills me because now I, you know, have been moving slowly up through um, my career since I've left high school after a lot of <laughs> failed starts in my 20s. Um, and she is exactly where we left her um, because you know, her options were just so denuded. And so in my sense now, I'm middle class on paper, but I still have this kind of obligation to her. Um, and it's it's a moral obligation on my part. Like I have only ever wanted her to be comfortable in her older age. And so everything I've ever done, I've kind of done with her in mind. And, you know, some people from middle class families or, or, or even richer families don't have those same concerns. Um, so we might earn the same amount of money on paper, but they will, and this isn't what it's about, but they will inherit money from their family. They will get guarantors from their parents for a home loan. Um, whereas with me, it's the other way around. Like I will never actually be um, truly on my own, even though I don't have kids because I'm, I'm looking out for her. And so I guess in that sense, the psychology of it is if, if we'd all moved out of it together, I probably would have forgotten a lot of what the grind was like because it's so easy to forget. But I haven't. And so I'm constantly reminded, I guess, of, you know, when I cover welfare stories or social policy stories for work, I'm constantly thinking, oh, my God, what would that have done to our family? Mm-hmm. Or what would that do to my mum now? And it makes me – it boils my blood. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about whether you would have had it any other way? Or, you know, if – like if, if you – are so sort of content with the relationship that you and your family have now that you're happy to have gone through the grind or it's like, no, I, yeah. I actually would like to have changed things. <laughs> Look, I, it's a really tough one because like, honestly, I think it's made me a better person. Um, you know, being on the margins in any way, shape or form, I think gives you a little bit more empathy for other people, um, including other people from different minority groups, even though you might not have the lived experience, you, you know, I try. Um, but, I, I can I can only answer that for myself. My mum has, you know, she suffered greatly 
um, and she still suffers. And the stress, I mean, the point I make in the book is that money is like gravity and that it actually does distort time and space. And it's done that for her. Like I um, took her to New Zealand last year. It was her first overseas holiday since she was 19. And I took her with my sister and my auntie and uncle. So we all paid um, for the whole trip. And literally she was like, oh, my God, there's a world out here. Mm. Um, And and more importantly to me, her body is old. She turned 61 this week, but she's an old 61. And the stress and the hard work has really taken its toll. And we'll never get that back. Mm. Um, And and I don't know, you know, I would love to have – you know, just had I, – I would love to have just been, you know, to have enough support growing up where we didn't have much but we didn't have to worry. And it's the worry that, that really is the killer. Yeah. What about the relationship between money and moral worth in mm. the culture and how that plays out and what can be uh, done about it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it really grinds my gears for a start because, you know, for those exact reasons I was just talking about, people assume – uh, you know, people like our leadership in, in Australia assume that if you're stuck in poverty, um, who who would want to be in poverty? Therefore, why haven't you moved yourself out? Mm. Um, so they assume it's somehow their fault that they're stuck there and that they didn't work hard enough and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But I've literally never met anyone in my life who's worked harder than my mum, like mm. never, um, no matter how much money they had. Um, and, and similarly with people I interview for work, it's always the ones with nothing who are the hardest working um, even um, I've gotten into a few arguments about this on Twitter with people about the unemployed workers union because they're like, how can they be a worker if they're unemployed? I'm like, oh, believe me, they work. Um, it is it, the work of survival is hard work, and I, I hate that attitude um, that it assumes that there's, there's moral worth attached to this, how much money you have, because it's only the only reason money people who have it um, appear to be you know better people or more capable is because money itself pays the way um you know you grow up with the right books and the right conversations and the right education in a certain house um then it's very easy to fool other people that you know what you're talking about um and the confidence that it buys is huge you know it took me 12 15 years to work out that i had anything worthy of saying um not just you know as a writer but just in friendship groups mm-hmm. at the pub um you know people would have these big conversations and i would just sit there listening because i didn't think that i knew what i was talking about and so those things really matter. I mean, how we change them, I mean, I don't know. We need people to to genuinely understand um, that these are not – that the, the kind of the, the buffet of choices is slim um, and, and much diminished if you don't have access to not just financial but cultural resources as well. Mm. Was, there, was there ever a point growing up where, you know, when you were younger and you were thinking about – entering the workforce and becoming an adult and did you ever believe that rhetoric that we're fed about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps did you think that getting money eventually was almost inevitable if you just tried hard enough or did you always know that was a lie well it's funny because I mean even that conversation was just um it's hard to explain and I don't know what um, your background is like but I try to explain to people how little I knew about the world um and thank god I didn't <laughs> because I probably would have been beaten down by it because I was just so blindly optimistic mm-hmm. and I had no right to be on paper, you know, but if I, if I went back now, knowing what I now know, I'm not sure I would have even went to university or, or entered journalism because it's bloody hard. And, you know, I thought journalists were rich when I was a young kid because <laughs> I saw a Channel 9 journalist get out of a helicopter once and I was like, holy <laughs> hell. <laughs> I'm like, that's the career for me. Um, <laughs> Um, so I'm not smart in that sense. I wasn't worldly. Um, so I don't um, – all I knew personally was that I wanted to escape um, and that I wanted to be something. Um, and it was a very kind of unformed, um, very uh, subconscious kind of understanding of, you know, who I was, that I, I had to do something and be something and work and work and work. And, like, I didn't take holidays for 10 years. Um, you know, I got a job at the age of, well, I mean, I was working from the age of 14 in my hometown, but then when I left high school, I got my job at the age of 17 in nine months and I didn't travel for myself mm. at all, um, until literally in the last year, um, just before coronavirus hit, I, mm. I went overseas for the first time to do research for my next book, um, which is an insane privilege. 
um, and then they shut the whole world down. So I'm like, I feel like that was my fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um- the, the Diversity Council Australia just released a survey about feelings of inclusion in the workplace and uh, said they were surprised to um, to learn that class inclusion was the number one feeling among workers uh, that made them feel alienated at work. Do you, do you feel like class has maybe been neglected uh, as Look, an issue? I do, and I, I hesitate to say it because obviously I'm white. Um, and I have a particular worldview, and I'm like I'm literally the white rural poor, um, which has kind of been fantasised about as this kind of Trump rump of voters and and things like that. And it's it's not the point at all. The point is class, and class is intersectional. So there are migrants um, who are you know have nothing, who have come to this country, who have the added barrier of the um, being on the outside of the mainstream culture. Um, but class itself is the narrative thread, I think. Um, you know, class with the other, you know, I call them multiplier effects. Like if you're lower class, you've got a disability and your skin colour is brown. Yeah, and then that's, it makes it hard, right? So it's, to me, class has so much explanatory power about the way this nation is run, um, but we don't like talking about it. And because of that, um, you feel even more, I think, um, particularly for myself, you feel more ashamed because you're like, well, maybe I'm just making it up. Like maybe I'm just maybe I should just get over it, and it's not true because those things actually do matter. Well, all these issues and more are explored in Rick Morton's new essay on money. It's published by Hashit and it's out now. Uh, Rick Morton, uh, great to chat with you this morning. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciated it. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.